lives are not reduced to one or the other. Like we have to live through our race and our class position and it shows up constantly. And so the idea that we can't afford to be um, reductionist in that is because the stakes are just too high. Um, I think if we are, we're just going to miss major parts um, of being able to make an impact in people's daily lives. And that really is at the root of organized labor, right? Like when people are organizing and part of unions, it's because they want to see real changes in their everyday lives. And if we're just gonna kind of make a clean sort of cut that part of their life is just not real or like part of their existence doesn't matter, um, then we're not actually making a real difference in people's lives. And I think at this point in time where we're seeing, you know, massive income inequality, where we're seeing massive consolidation of wealth, where we're seeing um, just, you know, kind of the lid continuing to be blown off of racial injustice, it's just like, do we really have a choice to ignore some of that? I, I just don't think we do. Um, and if we, and if for some reason we did, like, it just, we would be irrelevant. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. 58,000, the Vietnam War was the formative event in my life. Not that I fought in Nam or knew a lot of people that died, but still the war and the deaths has had a major impact on my life. 58,000 U.S. servicemen and women lost their lives in a war that should never have been fought. Of course, the focus on U.S. deaths reflects indifference to the non-U.S. casualties of the war and causes Americans to, quote, overlook the reality of estimated total death count, a count including Vietnamese, Laotians, and Cambodians, that range between 1.5 million and 3.6 million. 500,000. Right now, there is a generation of youth that will mark COVID as a formative event in their lives as 500,000 U.S. residents have died from COVID. That's like saying goodbye to the entire population of Atlanta or Miami, the cities, not the suburbs. Just as people died needlessly in Vietnam, there are untold numbers of people who died because the political and economic elites waged a successful 40-year war designed to defend government and rob it of its capacity to protect the most vulnerable members of our society. The power of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C., that it lists the names of those who died in Vietnam, so it is more difficult to invisibilize the dead. Hopefully, we can have a COVID memorial that lists the names of those that have died because of the virus, government ineptitude, and monstrous individuals converge to wreak havoc on our daily lives. But beyond memorials, we need structural changes at all levels in our society to reduce the probability that such a conversion can reoccur. And the campaigns that change our society will be led by those who have been on the front lines in this war, the communities most impacted by COVID, those workers who have sacrificed so much so that fewer die, and those that do die can live their final moments with as much dignity as possible. Today's guest is Michelle Crinsill. Michelle is the political director of the New York State Nurses Association, NISNA. The members of NISNA have been in a war zone for over a year. I think the term essential worker has been trivialized as the right uses the phrase, but refuses to honor those workers with significant policy responses. 
These workers have had to deal with the impacts of this pandemic on them, their families, and the patients. And this crisis has ripped open the inequities and inadequacies in our political and economic system. Nisna's fight can provide us a lot of insights on the road forward in arenas beyond healthcare. This should be a good conversation. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Michelle Hay, thanks for coming on board. I really appreciate it. Of course. Good to hear your voice. Good to talk to you again. How you been doing? You know, I've been hanging in there. It's been a really, really um, tough time, interesting time, exciting time, all the emotions. Yeah, I want to hear about that. And, you know, you're the political director at New York State Nurses Association, right? Yes. How long you, how long have you been in the job now? Um, funny story. So not quite a year. My first day at NISNA, we belovingly call it, um, was March 24th of last year. Um, that I believe is about, I think two days after the stay at home order for New York. So Mm -hmm. I actually started remotely. I've been to my office maybe twice during the interview process, but actually Mm -hmm. haven't worked out of the office. Um, and you know, what a time to start working at the largest nurses union in the state. Um, than when, you know, COVID started to ravage New York. Yeah. So it's been about a year. Um, my sense as an outsider, it's been like a war zone for your, your folk. What's it been like? It's, war zone is pretty accurate. Um, I think, you know, coming from the members, I mean, I, you know, personally about me, my mother was a nurse for, you know, decades. Um, and I grew up seeing the, hard work emotionally and physically that nurses put in every day. Um, And I think it was just on full display throughout the pandemic of, you know, our members going to work every day without the proper equipment, knowing they didn't have the proper equipment, but going in anyway, right? I think, you know, our members signed up um, to be nurses because they care about people, (laughs) because they want to provide quality care. Um, but then they were sort of thrown into this uh, kind of, you know, pretty horrible situation that we weren't necessarily prepared for. And it was like a war zone. I think a lot of them really described it like that, where it's like, you know, going on the battlefield, not sure if they're going to make it home, whether you're going to come home and, you know, accidentally infect people in your family. I mean, there was just a lot of um, fear, confusion. Um, but in spite of that, a lot of bravery, resilience, all of that. I mean, I don't want to say that that makes everything okay, but I do want to acknowledge just like the amount of strength and courage um, and resilience that came from the nurses here. Yeah. So I've gotten dose one of my vaccine. Um, oh, congrats. Do- hey, hey. It pays to be old, by the way, sometimes. <laughs> and I get dose two in March. But how are things changing now for the, for, for the members given the vaccines coming on board? What's it meant for their kind of work life? So it's actually been pretty interesting. I don't know if you've read about it, but the vaccine rollout here has also had its issues, right? It hasn't been smooth. Um, And I think it speaks larger to um, sort of the public health infrastructure, not just of the state, but also of the country, right? Um, I think 
the, just how it was like how it was rolled out, whether it you know worked in certain locations. It was just there was so much variance, right? And even now, we're starting to see data come out of you know who's being va uh, vaccinated at higher rates. So you know they're looking at neighborhoods that are whiter and more affluent, and they have higher rates of vaccination versus neighborhoods that um, are more people of color um, or more working class. Um, so I think we're seeing all this kind of similar. Um, uh, what is it called? Uh, sort of uh, disparities th that we saw throughout the pandemic like are also showing up through vaccination. Why is that? I think there's like, you know, a bunch of different factors, but I think because of that, it's added sort of another layer of challenges for our members, right? Of how to be able to educate, you know, their own communities, their friends, their coworkers around the vaccine, how to get access to the vaccine. Um, you know, it's, it, there's still just so many different hurdles. I think it is changing things. It is giving people a sense of hope though, right? Like we're gonna get through this, but I think we all know that the vaccine alone isn't gonna end this. It's just another step that we have to take. And I think we're seeing a lot of the um, challenges and barriers to even getting the full utility of the vaccine because we need to have it way more um, widely distributed than it is right now. Um, and there has to be equity in that distribution too. Yeah, so, so, so NYSTAR is statewide, right? Yes. Uh, the things you described, are you seeing the same things in New York City, you're doing Buffalo, and Albany, and Rochester, or, or is it kind of varies from city to city? Um, I've mostly been seeing data for New York City. I think we're trying to get um, data coming out of some of the other uh, uh, regions as well. But I mean, I'm hearing similar stories throughout the state. Um, and I think similar stories in that there's confusion, but like it could be, you know, specific to that region or something like that. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I think we anticipated this in a way, again, because of not really having such a robust public health infrastructure where it's like, you know, might be administered through, you know, the largest public health system or something like that. Like some of the vaccine has been administered or sort of managed by various like hospital corporations throughout the state. So kind of these mega systems that then, you know, manage the distribution or something like that. And sometimes that can be good, but, you know, if you don't necessarily have access or know about it, then it might not be that helpful. Um, so I think there's been, you know, kind of breakdowns around education and accessibility, who is eligible, how to, how to get access to it. There was a whole thing that like people were jumping the line because of some links online, you know, there's just different snafus that are popping up. But again, I think the members have been you know, the nurses just have been super resilient in trying to make sure that they get educated about it, that they can educate their patients and their communities about it. And, you know, we'll get through it, but it has been tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned about, about uh, kind of, I'll call it the decentralized way of trying to administer the vaccine. And, and what I thought about is, you know, a lot of times when you think about our healthcare system, we talk about it separate from our larger political economy. Right. We have kind of our economics over here, and health system over here, and we know it's imperfect, but we don't really talk about the manifestations of our healthcare system and our outcomes that are reflective of our political economy with structural racism and capitalism. That's not simply an accident, but when we talk about having a, a corporate healthcare deliverer, it reflects how capitalism affects a healthcare system and, and so forth. So I thought I think the idea that we can Think about and root discussions around healthcare, not just in structural racism, which is clearly part of it, but because racism and, and capitalism are so intertwined, and what we see is also a function of, of how capitalism organizes, our form of capital organizes 
um, a healthcare system itself. Right. Yeah, no, I <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, are, are, are your nurses looking at ways to, God, I don't know how you phrase this. So when we see more light, not the light, more light in the tunnel, are people looking at some structural change that was implemented there or they want to get back to some sense of normalcy? No, I mean, I think there is a sense of looking at structural changes. Um, I think there's a big, there's more hope around having a seat at the table, really, um, as, you know, frontline caregivers, as essential workers, right? Everyone praised nurses and applauded nurses for being the front lines, for being essential. And that's great. Um, but I think they're also saying, you know, we learned a lot. We went through hell and back. We saw a bunch we need to be at the table to talk about solutions, not just like what you owe us or something like that. And trust me, I think they are owed quite a bit. Um, but, you know, the selfless nature of nurses, I think they're more interested in what are the solutions? What are the sort of bold reforms that we can take on now? Um, understanding what we went through, like what are the lessons learned and how do we keep something like this from happening again? Not in the sense of like there will never be another like pandemic or coronavirus. I think we understand that this is not the last time we're going to see something like this, but how can we be more prepared? What are the lessons learned um, around investing in a public health infrastructure that won't be overwhelmed when something like this happens, right? One of the biggest um, policy positions that the union has been touting for a long time, for example, is a measure called safe staffing. Um, and it basically just talks about having adequate um, healthcare staff uh, to take care, to provide quality care for patients, right? So we usually talk about it in terms of a nurse to patient ratio. So if you think about a classroom, right? Um, you have a teacher and maybe you have 60 students. Would you rather have one teacher for 60 students or one teacher for like 20 students, right? Like it, that's gonna impact the type of education you get. Um, so if you are a patient in a hospital and there's one nurse for 15 of you versus like maybe one nurse for four of you, <laughs> things things might be different, right? So that's something that um, the union has been pushing for for a long time. And I think, you know, we saw how chronic understaffing um, before the pandemic sort of just didn't set us up for when we, you know, very much did get overwhelmed by um, this virus. Uh, and it's, you know, I think when you have chronic understaffing like that, it's like, we, you know, people didn't even really stand a chance. Um, and so that's even coming out uh, most recently in the report from the Attorney General Tish James um, about nursing homes. One of the big recommendations that she had in her report was about having actual an actual uh, minimum standard for staffing within nursing homes, um, being able to actually provide enough staff to care for residents in these nursing homes. And because it was chronically understaffed before the pandemic, that actually could have um, uh, most likely led to increased mortality within these nursing homes. And so seeing that even come out in that report that has been in the news, I feel like every day now, um, we're seeing issues that nurses have been talking about for a long time and had been, you know, sounding the alarm about. Um, and so I think right now we're really just looking towards solutions. Like we went through tragedy. Um, so how can we prevent that from happening again? So things like, you know, making sure to invest in the actual healthcare infrastructure, which means staff, not cutting healthcare funding, right? Like we've definitely had budgets over the last couple of years where there have been healthcare cuts, right? 
Um, you've seen a decrease in hospital bed capacity throughout the state over you know, the last decade. So you know, how are we investing in our public health infrastructure, again, through staff, through um, investment in uh, Medicaid and Medicare, and trying to even think about how can we expand um, healthcare access for folks who are underinsured or uninsured, um, I think that's going to renew a conversation about that too, right? Um, people losing their jobs and then all of a sudden losing their, you know, access to healthcare. That that's untenable, right? Like the, we had this big economic um, crash, and people not only lost their jobs, they lost their access to quality care. They lost so much. And we didn't really have an answer for it, right? And the only way to really um, kind of stave off this virus is to make sure that people are getting the quality care that um, is necessary to stave something off like this. And, you know, I think we got stuck a little bit. So I think it is pushing us to think about bolder solutions that actually meet the moment. Um, and I think that does provide some hope. So do NYSA's members work in mainly public systems or private or both? All over. All over. We well, mentioned the staffing issues, for instance, being important reform. Do you see that the staff, the ratios are better, let's say, in private systems versus public, or or is it bad across the board? Um, it really depends because we have um, private hospitals that are safety net hospitals, right? So they might not be bringing, they might not be public hospitals, but they have a payer mix, quote unquote, that mirrors public hospitals, right? So I live in Brooklyn. I live. Um, in Crown Heights, I live close to a hospital called Interfaith Hospital. Safety Net Hospital serves a lot of the um, uh, community around this neighborhood, right? And so that's going to be a, sort of a payer mix that might not be all privately insured or not have like, you know, yeah, it might not all be privately insured. And so the amount of revenue coming into that hospital might not be on par with like an NYU or like a Columbia or something like that. And so, yeah, sometimes you do see that um, the staffing in the hospitals that have higher revenue that are richer and often serve, you know, a population that might be whiter and have more money, um, you know, their staffing isn't actually that bad. And then you have safety nets that are struggling because they don't actually have the resources to, you know, pay for the staff that they need. But I think also what I have seen though about some of these safety nets is that it, they have invested the resources that they have in staff, you know, as much as they can, mm -hmm. even if they're not necessarily, you know, bringing in a ton of money, you know, they're doing their best to try and make sure that what they do bring in goes directly to patient care. Um, and so I don't want to um, sort of gloss over that, but I do think the lack of resources coming into, you know, safety net facilities or like the cuts that have been impacted them in public hospital systems have had an impact on their ability to staff up and be able to, you know, kind of with stand a crisis like this. You know, you're talking about the hope you saw from nurses taking initiative around suggestion reforms and why be involved in making the decisions. That whole idea of trying to say, we should say how things are done is an important advance for all of labor. I've always thought that one of the shortcomings for unions though has been kind of this division of labor, where we will simply negotiate over wages and benefits and some, and some work rules, but by and large, when we talk about larger kind of investment issues, we allow capital to decide what to do. And, and to the extent that we can go beyond the kind of, the kind of wall uh, between investment decisions and wages and salaries, it's an important way to give workers more control over their lives, actually, actually have more worker, working class control over what's actually happening. It's really important um, 
thing happening. I hope that people get very successful in, in, in doing that. But that's really great. Um, yeah. Now, we talked a couple of months ago, you were mentioning, I guess you just got started being a new job political director, and you are mentioning how in a lot of the big unions in New York City, they also have young people of color as their political directors. Yes. And I thought that was really kind of fascinating, you know, because then so often we talk about unions being institutions where you have large number of people of color members, but whites and probably white males are in key staff positions. Right. And I always think that the idea of being political towards the key staff position. So the idea that you'd have a, 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 in major unions, people of color there, because it means that's important, an important to advance. It's really great that's happening. Have you seen sort of changes in terms of the behavior of those unions because of, I say, your ascendancy? <laughs> My ascendancy. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, but seriously, beyond you, in terms of your, your cohort, you have you seen that y'all have a moving ways that other folk didn't move, that they see some tangible results? I think so. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just being sort of navel-gazy or something or wanting to like see everything with rose-colored glasses because I'm involved. But um, I do think there is a level of um, sort of like kinship and camaraderie um, between some of the, you know, younger folks of color who are taking on these major roles in these large institutions. Um, and if anything, it's just been incredibly helpful for me coming into this role at this time, knowing that I have, you know, like I have friends who've got my back, right? And like, even if our organizations don't agree all the time, I feel like there's a certain level of just like real talk we can have because of who we are um, and how we know each other and how we can talk to each other about, you know, whether it's work issues, issues outside of work, like there's just a way that we relate to each other that I think has made um, this work a little less stressful just because there is that level of kinship. Um, and it's also something interesting to see. I mean, New York um, as a state, um, obviously in New York City too, like it's a very diverse place. Um, and so I think having uh, important leadership in these very critical institutions that aren't just white men is just, it's just necessary. It's imperative, right? Like, cause that's, white men are not the only people who work in New York. Like we know that. Um, so we have to have folks that actually represent um, major parts of the workforce in, um, you know, in the state uh, and representation, you know, doesn't, necessarily equal results, but I think it is important. Um, and so I don't want to deny that. Um, so I do think there has been, I don't know, it, it just feels different being able to um, work with other, you know, somewhat young, I keep saying young, we're not all that young, but <laughs> somewhat young people of color in these, in these roles. I do think it's it's been interesting. From my vantage point, you're young, okay? We'll leave it there. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, we were talking about meaning when we talked earlier in, in terms of both the, the coming uh, into these positions. And one important, to me, important reason to, to, to celebrate that is that oftentimes we have this what I call a stale sort of race versus class debate. So what's happening with black folks? Is it race is a problem or is it class the problem? Why folks, why white folks acting crazy? Is it race is a problem or is it class is the problem? And it seems to me when you have a working class institution, where you have people of color in some more of a powerful position, it allows for a more sort of rich view of this world 
to unfold where it's not race or class or, or race or cap capitalism, but it's both. And you said, use the phrase that um, we could not afford to be reductionist. Yeah. What do you mean, what, what do you mean by that? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, I'm like, that was a really nice, profound statement I made, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> what led me to that? I was no. impressed. I was impressed, by the way. So, hey, you, you won me over. Okay. <laughs> I think, um, you know, in saying that, I think it's just kind of talking about the stakes, right? Like, our lives are not reduced to one or the other. Like, we have to live through our race and our class position, and it shows up constantly. And so the idea that we can't afford to be um, reductionist in that is because the stakes are just too high. Um, I think if we are, we're just going to miss major parts um, of being able to make an impact in people's daily lives. And that really is at the root of organized labor, right? Like when people are organizing and part of unions, it's because they want to see real changes in their everyday lives. And if we're just gonna kind of make a clean sort of cut that part of their life is just not real or like part of their existence doesn't matter, um, then we're not actually making a real difference in people's lives. And I think at this point in time where we're seeing you know, massive income inequality, where we're seeing massive consolidation of wealth, where we're seeing um, just, you know, kind of the lid continuing to be blown off of racial injustice. It's just like, do we really have a choice to ignore some of that? I, I just don't think we do. Um, and if we, and if for some reason we did, like, it just, we would be irrelevant. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a sort of more eloquent way to say that, but I really just do think we would be irrelevant if we're not trying to take on the real intersection of these issues. And I even, you know, hesitate at using the word intersection because I think sometimes that gets, you know, kind of uh, misread, but like, it's true. It's like these things are inextricably linked. We know that um, it's just been that way through the development of this, you know, of this country and the society. And so if we're gonna pretend that that's not the case, then I don't think we're a relevant institution anymore. Yeah, I, I tend to use the term intertwined, more intersectional, to be honest, yeah. in a lot of ways. But when you talk about irrelevance, that's a fascinating term, so important, because when I hear that we would become irrelevant, that means that folk won't want to be active in the institution. That I have certain needs, but you want to address them because you're stale either or, and I kind of drop out. Right. And when they drop out of us, they drop into other things. Exactly. And this notion of doing, seeing people's whole folk, it seems really, really super important. So I'm glad that 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 you're able to you meeting your cohort of folk, able to take up those those, those things well, and hopefully build more and more and more power. Exactly. You no, know, so I also thought about wait, go back to the race class thing, and I think about intra black politics. You know, and, and big debate over you know what could Bernie have done different sort of stuff, and not trying to put weight on Bernie at all. By the way, as an example, and going mm -hmm. to South Carolina, and how in many ways. The reason why Biden is president is because of Black folks in South Carolina. Mm. And, and I think that on the national level, you still see a lot of political relationships in the Black community that are tied to census forces in, in the Democratic Party. But to me, where the actions on a local level, you see a lot of vibrant sort of activity inside Black political context around this question, which way forward? 
do you, do you have folk at a local level who are following kind of a centrist or liberal line with people becoming more progressive? In some ways, the Cory Bush fight in South in, in in St. Louis was evident of that, where she took on Lacey, Lacey Clay, who's been there for 50 years through his father as well, in Oakland Simmons sort of battle. I sense in I sense in New York City, you see a lot of the same sort of intricate black community battles around progressive versus centrist fat um, activity. Is that true? Do you see that in New York as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think you're going to see that in places where there's a large, you know, where there's like a larger black population or like, you know, just a diverse population. I think sometimes in places where um, there just like aren't that many of us, <laughs> right? Like you can sort of just say black people are one thing. They're a monolith. Well, in New York City, where there's a lot of black people, um, in New York State, where there's a lot of black people, we are not all the same, right? Like we can run the gamut in terms of a political spectrum. And I actually like that, right? Because I think then we have to, um, we have to be stronger in our analysis of why we're pushing for certain candidates or why we're pushing for certain policies. It can't just be like, I'm going with the black candidate. It's like, which one? There's 20. <laughs> and why? Right? Like, I think it sort of pushes us to really um, articulate an agenda that wins people over, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, I want to get, you know, as a progressive, sometimes I want to be mad, like, oh, you know, people just didn't know. And I'm like, or did we do enough organizing? Maybe we didn't. <laughs> Maybe we didn't actually articulate that agenda that really resonated with people and gave people a path to win it, right? Like, I think it's one thing to inspire folks. It's important and we should, but like, are we also kind of laying out that plan, like that path to victory with it, right? Um, I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to organize and hard to like make that um, argument, but it's still something we have to do. Um, so I do think having sort of a more like diverse uh, set of politics, even within the black community in New York is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be tough, right? It can make people frustrated, um, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it just pushes us to really be able to do really damn good organizing. Yeah, I mean, in some ways I see it being neither good nor bad, it's simply real. It's just, it, right, it just is, whether you like it or not, it right. exists. I mean, some people may, be, some black folks may be opposed to minimum wage, why? They may run restaurants. They don't want to pay higher wages, you know, or some people have different viewpoints given the actual class position in our economy. So to me, exactly. simply the way they exist, and you can't gloss over those. And so to me, that the fascinating thing you said is how do you do the real organizing? Mm -hmm. People can both see the idea, but equally important, see the pathway to success. Exactly. The pe people can may, may, maybe people can see the dream, mm -hmm. but say, that's my next, that's next lifetime. It's not this lifetime, right? Right. We need to get people to see how they can do things in this lifetime. Um, got so many questions, Michelle. <laughs> who, who are you? So what was your kind of aha moment to get inside the labor movement? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know. It's so funny. I always wish I had one of those like moments where everything clicked. Um, but I think it feels like it was just a snowball effect of various things. Um, I think I owe a lot to my family. Um, I feel like they've always been sort of political in their own way, um, whether it's viewed as political and how I would view it now, but I think they've always been political in their own way. Um, I grew up in Kentucky, although I was not born there. Um, my father was actually in the military, so I moved around a little bit, but my mother's family is originally from Kentucky, and my father's originally from Ghana, actually, West Africa, um, but is, in, is a U.S. Navy veteran, so there's that. But 
Um, I think they've always been politicized in their own way. You know, my mom kind of coming up through the 60s and 70s in the South. Um, my father um, growing up in post-colonial Ghana, like their lives have been very politicized just because of their experiences. And I think they leaned into it versus away and definitely raised me, my brother and my sister to lean into those politics, um, you know, in their own way, whether it's, you know, what we grew up reading, watching all that. Um, and I think I just carried it with me. Um, and I think I wanted to get involved in the labor movement because I, I always saw, um, I mean, my parents were, you know, active in their own sort of uh, uh, kind of worker organizing at times. But I think I always saw people in my family and in my community as working people. <laughs> um, and then I always saw that they felt the most powerful um, or had the most capacity to change things when they did things collectively. And I think that led me to, um, you know, just figuring out how to organize. And I, you know, cut my teeth with the labor movement doing that. Um, and I think there's something really special about the labor movement in that it's not necessarily when you're organizing um, at a union or at a workplace that people chose to be there per se. Um, it's, you know, people are connected because of that job or because of that work site. And they might not like each other. In fact, they might really not like each other. <laughs> there might be all sorts of divisions within that work site, but as an organizer, you have to figure out how to bring people together um, in some way to, you know, push for their collective, um, for their collective purpose and for their collective interest that is aligned even with some of their self-interest, um, even though you have people who, again, really might not like each other. And I thought that was always really interesting about union organizing versus, you know, maybe even sometimes um, working with community groups or things like that, where people sort of elect to join an organization because they like really see that, you know, their values in it. That's not necessarily the case, like with the union, right? Like they're at a workplace and like, they might all just hate their manager, but like, they don't love each other either. <laughs> so, you know, how do you create community there to get people to take risks? Um, that's just hard. Um, but I think it's really incredible when you see it happen. You made me think of another question I should have asked you earlier, so I'll ask it now. Uh, you mentioned the people kind of fall into, they fall together because of jobs, right? They fall into, now I'm in a union, right? I'm in, in, in Eisner. How do you deal with more conservative people inside the union? Do, do, you, do you envision kind of a world where post-pandemic, the kind of the, the, the solidarity built through the pandemic, does the carry over deal with those kind of complicated issues around, I'll call it Trump right now, but it's more complicated than Trump. Do you see that? I'm assuming that if you're a statewide union, there are people there who didn't, who voted for Trump. Oh yeah. And and so how do you, how do you, how do you see dealing with that in a world where there may not be shared consensus on all these things, but there's a shared sense of experiences that allow some sort of conversations to be held, heard and, and held honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think on, it's just that, right? It allows some of these conversations to be had really honestly and authentically. And I think it allows members to like push each other, right? Like they were going through this collective trauma and there were clear political barriers because of various political actors, right? And so if people wanna say like, 
we're nurses and we're nurses together and we believe in XYZ because we're nurses, it's like, okay, fine. Um, I'm going to need you to talk to your buddy Trump or like your buddy whoever and tell and ask them why they're standing in the way of the things that you know we need as nurses, right? So I think it can even sort of create more dialogue around, you know, like, let's get rid of this whole thing of just like, oh, you're a Trumper and you're not a Trumper. It's like, all right, like, if that's what you believe in, cool. But like, we're all sitting in hospitals, not getting hazard pay and not having the adequate PPE. So how can we work together to get that? Do you want to work together to get that? Or do we just, are, are we going to let, just not deal with that because you, we have a different sort of, you know, partisan outlook, right? I think it forced real conversations about, again, these things that impact people's daily lives. And it's like, how are we going to organize together to get that? Understanding we're not going to agree on everything. Like, look, there are definitely varying political viewpoints within the union. It's a union of thousands of members, right? Like, it no, a lot of people are not going to agree on a lot of different things, but I think there are um, various issues that are going to impact their work and their daily lives that they're going to have to figure out how to organize around and organize together or they're not going to win. And I think with the stakes being so high um, with something that is literally life or death, it's going to really force some you know, honest conversations, some hard conversations um, that I think, you know, as labor, we just have to be prepared for that. You know, we have to be able to facilitate those conversations. They're really tough. <laughs> I can admit that they have not been easy. Um, but, you know, I think we have to bring it back to the fact that these issues are that it's just it, the stakes are that high. The, these issues are that impactful. Like it can mean the difference between life or death for folks. So, you know, how are we going to get through this. It's not just winning a campaign. Um, it's, you know, you know, protecting our livelihood. I always thought that, that we, we all have multiple identities and for certain reasons, some identities come to the forefront. Like I'm black and I'm left-handed, but who cares if I'm left-handed, right? <laughs> and, and, and only in the rare cases that'd be a primary part of my identity, right? And so it'd be interesting to see how the war zone that people have are going through and coming through right now, how it allows a kind of reshifting of people's identity priorities. Right. People who may before have been some major social conservative sees that they could hold on to that at some level, but see it's maybe less important given the crisis in front of us. So we, we need to check back and see how, how that happens down the road. Kind yeah. Of, take care of that, right? It'll be really interesting. <laughs> how do you define Black Freedom Girl? How do I define black freedom? Um, okay, so I'm like, I feel like I have a funny answer and I mostly just have a funny answer. I wish I had a serious answer, but my funny answer is somewhat serious too. <laughs> How do I define black freedom? I define black freedom as um, the sort of ability and freedom to just kind of be, um, whether that's be completely joyful um, also, I always said this, I'm fighting for Black people to be able to be mediocre. <laughs> That's a joke that I make, but like, it's kind of true, right? Like, I feel like the things that we usually celebrate are about Black people are, it's Black exceptionalism, right? Like, this Black person jumped through all these ridiculous hoops to do this thing. I'm like, I want to celebrate Black mediocrity too. There are a lot of mediocre white folks who get to live their lives to the fullest. <laughs> like, I, 
I just wish there weren't so many barriers um, to what would be Black people living their lives to the fullest, right? Like, I, I, I want us to, I think Black freedom is the day where um, it's not only characterized by Black firsts, by Black exceptionalism, right? Like, it's just, you know, Black people can just be. <laughs> Sounds good. Winding things down. So what are you reading right now to kind of keep your mind active and stuff? What am I reading? Um, I've been reading a bunch of policy and <laughs> um, the uh, 30 day amendments that came out for the state budget. But um, what I should be reading um, is actually how capitalism underdeveloped Black America. Oh, many memorable. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I started that and like really need to finish this. Um, super engaging and I think also really timely. Um, even though it's not, you know, new, it still is very resonant and very timely. Um, yeah, I do need to read more um, non-policy. <laughs> Sounds good. So if you aren't reading non-policy, um, you can't read policy all the time. You got to be sane. Any sort of music keeps you sane? Any music keeps um, you going, keeps you going strong when things are getting, getting you down? Yeah, um, I listen to... I still, I listen to a lot of jazz um, and I still listen to kind of like a lot of like old um, R&B and soul. It's very, I don't, I don't know why, um, but I've just gotten really kind of, I've fallen into it um, and just can't seem to get out of that black hole of listening to older soul and R&B. I just opened up my Spotify and I guess I was listening to Betty Wright earlier today, right? Like okay. I, <laughs> clean, clean up woman, huh? Clean up woman, all right. <laughs> why, you know, why not? Why not? Um, Esther Phillips, Irma Thomas, all of that, you know. Who are your jazz people? I love jazz. Who are your jazz folk? <laughs> um, I, you know, I do love Coltrane. Um, I, let's see, what else have I been listening to? Um, Sonny Rollins. Uh, let's see, Miles Davis. Are you an old Mingus. You're an old soul. I'm Definitely a Mangus. That's actually one of the saddest moments through, I mean, just, I don't want to make light of what's going on with the pandemic, but obviously um, in New York, a lot of things have closed down. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, changed the city. Um, and so there's the, uh, what, the jazz standard and they used to have Mingus Mondays mm. um, and they closed. And I'm like, will I ever, ever have another Mingus Monday? And uh, yeah. that was really sad. Yeah, yeah, well. That's one of the downsides of the pandemic, obviously. Um, yeah. Michelle, thanks a lot, this has been great. Um, it went by fast. Um, I know, I know. Okay. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do it again. It's not the last time I'll talk to you, either formally or informally. So thanks a lot for being on the show, okay? Of course, thanks for having me. It was great to talk with Michelle. I'm excited to see how the union builds its push for structural reform in the healthcare system. Equally important, how will the union leverage the COVID-4 solidarity amongst members to shift some of the internal racialized splits? Progress in these two areas are essential to building a progressive government majority. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. Until next episode, stay safe and be well. <laughs>